Now on the fifth parak of, of, uh, of Eicha, you have the text in front of you. And uh, before starting, I want to point something out uh, that I mentioned in the introductory shear, which is the Midrash, which is the p- bottom of the first page, which is actually called page 17. <coughs> um, and it's a Midrash that appears in the Ptichtaot of Eicha Rabbah. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Um, um, Echa Rabbah is a, we think, 4th century collection of Midrash Eretz Yisrael and Echa uh, that has a very long series of Ptichtaot, which are literally, which the translation actually is proem, but it's an introductory Midrash to the reading, the Ptichta. And it always starts with Rabbi Blank, Patach, because this is how he would introduce the reading of Echa. And often as not, a Ptichta would start with a Pasuk from somewhere else, so we're in Breshit, so we're in Yumiyahu, whatever it is, and wind its way around and end with the word Eicha. And you could see that it was a kickoff, an introduction into the reading of Eicha. And in the Ptichtaot, um, I think this might be the last one, 27 I think is the last of the Ptichtaot. So Pinchas associated the, uh, the events that Megillah and Eicha is speaking about with the Tochacha in Vayikra. The Tochacha in Vayikra, if you recall at the end, uh, the entire book of Vayikra... Is, is built around the number seven, and um, and a lot of seven days and seven hazaot, etc. And of course, the end of Vayikra focuses on Shemitah and Yova, which are all about sevens. And in the Tochacha, the curse is the imprecation is that if you do not listen to me, then I will revisit your sins on you sevenfold. Shevachototechem. So when Pimchas picks up on that, it says, He doesn't clarify which seven sins these are, but you sin, you violated seven <laughs> transgressions. Kinot <coughs> is, of course, the rabbi's word for Echa. Seven alphabets of Echa. Which, of course, is a little difficult, considering that we have four. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. So, squeezing a little bit, we can actually get 6, because chapter 3 is 3 olives, 3 bets, 3 gimels, etc. And so therefore you would say, olive, bet, gimel, 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 dalid, but you still only have 6. Where's the 7th alphabet? And you take a look at Parakeh, which is the obvious candidate for that, which is staring right at you, and you can see that it is nothing of an alphabetic acrostic in any way. However, curiously, it does have 22 psukim. That's why I left the pasuk numbers at the end there. So you could see that it, it does end with pasuk chafet. Now, we don't end with chafet because we repeat chafalif, which ends on a positive note, hashivenu, uh, and we'll talk about why that is. But a question I'd like to park for right now and address at the end of this year is, what does Rabbi Pinchas mean by saying that there are seven alphabets in Eicha uh, when this one is no, no, nothing of an alphabet at all? Um, and I'm not sure that I'm going to have a great conclusion to it, but, you know, it's something to, to, to kind of think about. Um, it is um, something that we not only <coughs> accept because Chazal says so in the Breitah, um, and that is that Yirmiyahu is the author of Echad throughout the Midrashim. Ba, Yirmiyahu, Mekonein, why did Yirmiyahu say this, etc. But also, the, as I pointed out two sessions ago, in Paragimel, the autobiographical chapter where the Mekonein is talking about his own life and his own experiences and 
paralleling them to the experiences of the nation and how he found his solace and in his awareness of God's chesed, etc., uh, as an inspiration to them, uh, is something that speaks directly to who Yirmiyahu is. So besides the fact that, well, we know of only other one, Naviyamet, which is Hulda, uh, who's around at the time, besides all the Naviyasheker, of course, and the description in Paragimel, uh, Mania Gever, is exactly a description of Yirmiyahu's own travails. So it really points to Yirmiyahu as the author of Echa. And as someone who was a witness to the siege, to the suffering, to the destruction, to the fire, all of those things that he describes, it, it fits perfectly. Until we get to Parakeh. Parakeh is a problem. So I'm going to re-ask a question that I've asked every time, and today try to answer it. Uh, Eicha is a book not of law. It's not a book of history. It's not a book of prophecy as such, to say, you know, such and such will happen. Uh, it's a book of a particular kind of shira, a particular kind of poetry, and the kind that we've referred to as expressive poetry. And it really uh, is, in a, in, is in a class, almost by itself, the only other book in Tanakh that seems to be of expressive poetry is Shira Shirim. And whenever you get to those books, you have to ask the question, why is it there? So history, we understand why it's there. Law, we certainly understand why it's there. Prophecy, we understand why it's there. Uh, we understand why books of wisdom are there. Eov, right? They help you go to sleep. But um, uh, Eov, Mishle, Kohelet, those parts of Tehillim that are Safruda Chochmah are there uh, as observations about life and good guidance for, for how you should live. Why are these expressive books there? So Shir Hashim belongs to a different Shir, and we, we've, done, we've studied Shir Hashim together here. Um, but, uh, but why Why is it here? And the, the second part of that question is, what is the goal of the Mikonen, the Durger, in our case, Yirmiyahu, what is his goal in this? So it's two questions put together. One is, what is he trying to accomplish with all these words? And second of all, why is this book in Tanakh? Which are related, but not the same question. <clears throat> and when, as we've looked through the first four Prakim, which we've studied, um, we've seen that Almost all of the all of the words really are either the Mekonen's words or the Mekonen has personalized, for the most part, the buildings of the city, or or in some cases the other nations, and has given voice to them. But we really haven't heard anybody else's voice. This is all really a solo with some ventrilo- some fancy ventriloquism. That's what Echa is up until here. Um. I'm going to make two bald and bold statements. One is, if that Eicha ended after Perak Dalit, it would be a failure. And the second is, that Eicha Perakeh is not Yirmiyahu. doesn't mean Hashan that Yirmiyahu failed. It means that Yirmiyahu did everything that was possible to do as Yirmiyahu, and only with Perakeh is the book redeemed. Alright, we'll see. Through Perak Aleph, in which, remember there's Two voices in Parakalif. There's the Mekonein and the city. And essentially talking about the desolation of the city, the betrayal by the um, allies and friends of the city. Parak Bet speaks about the loss of the honor of the city. And again, the city speaks and Mekonein speaks. Um, it, that includes uh, an attempt to try to get the city to weep. 
and a little bit of, a, of, a, of an awareness of some culpability on the part of the city. Parak Gimel, of course, is this whole other attempt. We spent a year on that. And Parak Dalid goes for the jugular. Parak Dalid talks about the killing, the, the terrible and, and, and contrasting, and in strange contrasts, that you are worse than Stone. Stone, at least, never had human hands. Remember, we talked about perspective on that. Uh, that it's worse to die by hunger than it's to die by the sword. All of these things that highlight whatever's going on in your life as being the worst possible, the worst sins and the worst, uh, and sort of the worst consequences. The very end of Paragdawid is sort of this quiet assurance, not quiet assurance that we're going to be okay, but more a focus on, well, they're going to get those too. Batadom gam kos. Uh, you're also going to get your bitter punishment. At the end of that point, this, the people haven't spoken at all. And now we come to Parakeh. Look at Parakeh and you will see something fundamentally different about it. And in fact, the only thing that it seems to share, seems to, it's not true, the only thing it seems to share with the first four Parakeh is the fact that it's 22 Psukim. The length of the Psukim is different. It's not the first, second prakim, which are very long psukim of imbalanced meter. It's not the fourth parak, which are long psukim of balanced meter. It's not the third parak with these tricolons, three psukim, tricola, these three psukim that are very short. It's shortish psukim um, that are all follow kind of similar meter. Zachar Adonai mehayalanun habita ureyev cherpateinu. Now who's speaking? Who's speaking? It sounds like the people are speaking. This is the first time we actually heard them speak. But let's hear, we're going to go through the parak right now, pasuk by pasuk, make sure we understand what the words mean. You have the translation underneath. We're on page 17, the front of these pages. And we'll see, I want to ask you two things. The who's speaking, but the more critical question is the when. When are these words being said? Just look at the words and look at the setting. It's a tefillah. Hashem, remember what has happened to us. Look down and see our shame. Our inheritance, our land, has been taken over by foreigners. And that's called forward gapping. Our houses have been taken over, as understood, by strangers. Uh, this would be a very easy pasuk to see for people who made it through the Shoah and then came back to their hometowns and found that their homes that they'd grown up in were now being lived in by the neighbors. Yitomim hayinu avi motenu kalmanot. And it's unclear whether they're saying really our fathers are dead because we are orphans or our mothers are like widows. They are dead. They're not dead. But we're out of the metaphor. We're not talking about a city that's like a widow at the beginning. We're talking about human beings, orphans, widows. Our own water we have to pay to drink. We have to go to the guy who's now sitting on top of the cistern that was ours and pay him for water. We want to get our own wood, we have to pay for it. Wood from our own forest. We're enslaved, essentially. Mitzrayim natanu yadin. This now goes back. We put our, extend our hand to Egypt, Ashur lisboalachem, to Assyria, to Egypt, and, of course, we know throughout Echa how that all played out. 
Avotenu chatu ve'inam. Now listen very carefully because this is going to help us understand the question of when. Avotenu chatu ve'inam. What does that mean? Our ancestors sinned. They're no longer here to answer for their sins. And therefore what happens? Now this is not speaking about multi-generational culpability. This is speaking about reality. They sinned. As a result of their sin, a terrible situation ensued. Destruction, oppression, um, confiscation, etc. of the land. And now we're suffering for that. It's not speaking on a metaphysical level. It's not on a political level. Avadim mashlubanu. We have slaves that have taken over and are and are, run, are are ruling us. Whether they're looking at the bavlim as avadim, or whether this is an association with Edom, they come back to that image. miadam. Nobody's going to redeem us from them. We have to work with our own lives just to bring some bring some bread. And now they're going back and describing the terrible hunger. But the hunger that we talked about in Perak Dalid was a hunger of the siege. This seems to be a hunger of oppression. This, this feverish starvation that happens, and as a result of that, our, our skin has become black. It's important to note that black skin in Tanakh is um, always seen as, a, as an unattractive thing and all, almost always associated with either some physical ailment or with, or with starvation. Right. It's not only Tanakh. What? Not I'm not saying, but in Tanakh. In Tanakh. Um, Nashim Now this goes back, and we're going to see how this, how this develops. They... Violated women in Sion, they impaled the minister, the kings, the princes. They did not honor the elderly, the wise ones. And the young men all had to do this hard work. The elders are no longer at the gates. The young men are not celebrating anymore. Now, there seems to be a little bit of, uh, you know, you've already said that people are dying, so why are you complaining about there's no celebrations? And you're going to see what the order here is. Shavat masos libenu nepach Now, there's a very interesting thing that happens, a phenomenon that happens in our communities, and I've seen it in several different cities. When we read Eicha, I think everybody around the table here could testify to this. When we read Eicha, typically um, we're pretty quiet, except for the reader. And sometimes at the very end of the parak, people will kind of chant along the last half of Pasuk or something. You get to the fifth parak, what happens? Around the middle of the parak, suddenly people start just instinctively. It's not choreographed, and it's not planned. Okay, you on Pasuk, you on Tetzai, you on Tetzai, you on Tetzai, you on Baki, you on Yod, start singing a lot. It's not like that, but you notice what happens? And by the time you get to these Pasukim, suddenly everybody's singing along. Until you get to the very end, and it's like a, it's like a group sing-along. And that's very much what this is supposed to be. Everyone's excited because it's over. It's no, not, not at all. You don't think so? I don't think at all. It's I, th- I, th- this, I don't think it's anything of the sort. Well, I think it's, this, it's this so is... awful in the middle. I'll tell you why. Because if you look at the words and you look at what's happening here, this is a call to sing along. It's not a call to sit there silently and listen. And it's working. And Minhag Yisrael, to, to, to start joining in little by little, 
as a sort of an aesthetic minhag or a choral minhag really works here. Shavat masos limenu, nepach our singing, our rejoicing has turned into mourning. Nafla ateret roshenu. And now we reach the crescendo of what's happened bad, is that our crown has fallen. We don't know what the crown is. Is the crown the crown of kingdom? Crown of independence? Crown of life? What is it? Oina lanu kichatanu. And now we find out. Al With all of this, you know what daveli benu, we know what our hearts are really upset about? Al Al heart sion shishamem. Heart Sion here doesn't mean Heart Sion. It means Harbait. That Harbait is desolate, Shualim Hilkuba. Or it could be referring to the city Bechlal. That there are foxes walking there. Later on, Chazal, of course, associated this with the Mikdash, the famous story about Rabbi Akiva. And now what happens? Now notice how the notion of permanence comes in here to rescue us from the situation that we're describing. You, Hashem, are king forever. Kisachalodorador. And now the foreverness comes the other way. Lama lanetzach tishkachenu. Why do you forget us forever? Because it feels like forever. Why does it feel like forever? So I'm going to ask you one more time. When is this parak being said? Look at the grammar in it. Look at the, the, look at the mentions of it. And we'll get a hint. Tazvinu la'orechemim. You abandoned us for a long time. And then... We turn and say, This is the first time that we've actually done this. It's the only time in Echa. Where we, the people, actually turn to God and say, Bring us back. We'll come back. We're asking God to kind of generate the move. Now, is a very tricky phrase. It's the old michshol, the old obstacle or the tripping point of nostalgia. We have this image that everything back in the old days was great. There's a whole industry that has turned Europe into a fantastic place for Jews to, li- Jews to live, which, of course, any historian knows how preposterous that is. But, Chadesh Reino Kikadam. here is a very simple notion, which is, before all this happened, things were a lot better. That's what we're looking for. We're not saying it was idyllic, but that's what we're asking. Bring us back to the way it used to be. Rather, what's happened? Ki'im ma'os ma'ostanu. Instead, you've rejected us. You're very, very angry with us. Now, of course, we can't end there. So what do we do? We all loudly say Hashivenu. And then the Shlach the, Tzibur the repeats it. Okay. When is this parak said? Sounds like it's written in Baba. Exactly. Or at least in that period. This is at least a generation after the events. And the best clue is, our ancestors sinned and they're not here and we're suffering. In other words, there was a generation that was culpable and that lived through the destruction, made it through the destruction, didn't make it, and now we, either their children or grandchildren, are still suffering from the results. Now look at the parakin, you can see it. Can I ask you a question? Oh, hold on one second. Our land has become. It's not like now they're sitting on it. It has become. We go to the, to the place where we used to own land, and now we have to buy water from the cistern. cistern. We have to go and work for the people who own our land to get stuff out of our own land. So this is a reflection now, a generation later, on what's happened. There's even an interesting allusion to this. You know, remember that in the Midrash that we saw at the beginning, there was a mention of there being seven alphabets. I, I have no solution for how this is an alphabet. There are 22 psukim. 
But what he may be alluding to is the idea that there is an acrostic in this parak also. Um, we're all familiar with uh, abecedarian acrostics, right? Alphabetic <coughs> acrostics, where Aleph, Begimel, right? Asher, etc., right? And Eicha, for example, Eishet Chayel, etc. There are other acrostics that everybody around this table is very familiar with. There's a colophonic acrostic where the author signs his name into the text. Where do we know that from most prominently? From Zmirot. All Zmirot, right? All the Zmirot, the Chadot right? All the Zmirot that we sing on Shabbat, they're written in medieval period. The authors sign their name, and very blatantly, right? Baruch Elyon is Baruch Chazak, right? Chazak is usually the end, right? The Ari wrote several, you need to see his name, Yitzchak, Luria, Chazak, Right, uh, Israel Najara, who wrote uh, Karibon Olam. Right. Take a look at the verses. It's very simple to see. Uh, Elohim Sadeno, written by Avraham Ibn Ezra. Right. And there are colophons even in Tanakh. I'll show you an interesting one. If you look in uh, Yeshayahu, which you don't have in front of you, if you look in Yeshayahu, you realize that uh, Yeshayahu, this is now not getting at all into the issue of how many different authors contributed to the book of Yeshayahu, but if you take a look at Yeshayahu, you realize the first 12 prakim constitute the first Chomim uh, Kovetz, the first uh, collection or, or uh, group of prophecies. Starting from, uh, from Yod Gimel, uh, prophecies for, number, for a dozen prakim against the nations. Up until there, it's prophecies towards Israel. And Perak Yod Bet ends with the following psukim. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. Remember, it's say for Yeshayahu. Um, and so the theory goes that Yeshayahu is simply signing his name at the end of the work. It's the end of the first group, and he's putting his name in there. Um, that if you take a look at the at the um, at the beginning of this parak, uh, the first two words are Zachor Adonai. How would you turn that into a name? What name would that be? Zechariah, okay? Now, follow me with every half pasuk here. This is not mine. This is, uh, Zari Rosenfeld wrote this a number of years ago. All right? You have Habita, then Nachlatenu, Batenu, Yetomim, and Imotenu. And if you turn the page and you look at the bottom of page 18, you can see on the right-hand side at the bottom that it essentially spells the Zechariah Hanavi. All right? Now, that alone gets no better than cute. That gets about a 7 on the cute meter and about a 3 on the reality meter. But I'm going to ratchet both of them up. The cute will remain where it is, but on the reality meter, I'm going to ratchet it up because of the following. Um, in Ezra Perak Hay, we have a, uh, a pasuk. Ezra Perak Hay. You have a pasuk, uh, Perak Hay, pasuk Aleph and Bet, uh, which describe the re energized completion of the building of the Mikdash, what we call the second Beit HaMikdash, but that's a misnomer, but the rebuilding of the Mikdash, which was stopped for about 20 years, and then it was re-energized under the I in about the year 518 BCE, and you have the following two psukim. Nabi Chagai Neviyah Uzechariah Bar Adiyo Neviyah Al Yehudaye Divi Yehud Rishalem Meshem Eloah Yisrael Alehon. Chagai Navi and Zechariah Ben Yidob Ben Barachiah Navi were inspired to give Nevoah to the Jews in Jerusalem, so Yeshua, Yeshua ben Yotzadak, who's the Kohen Gadol, and Zerubbabel ben Shaltiel, who's the governor, then get everybody to go and finish the building. 
And the prophets of God are helping them. How are the prophets of God helping them? So if you look at the book of Haggai, you can actually see it. Because in Haggai, the two chapters, we've studied it a couple times together, in the book of Haggai, uh, you could see that the entire focus of Haggai is, finish the building. The, whole, the opening line is, Hashem says to Haggai, why are the people saying it's not yet time to build? They're very happy living in their fancy homes, and my Mizbeach is sitting out there, there's just a Mizbeach and some foundations, there's no building. Right? And the whole thing is about building. Zechariah doesn't seem to get into that, doesn't seem to. So it's possible this is Zechariah's contribution that Ezra's referring to. Why? Why would this be a contribution to rebuild it? So, if you think about it, and now we're going to take a look at page 18, you'll notice that the, um, that the, our parak, was an opening line. And then, step by step, it goes through the themes of all three prakim, one, two, and four. Remember, three is a separate piece. The first specific line about what's happened that our land has been given over to others is exactly what the first parak Bigadol talks about. But now we're just getting straight to the point without all the flowery stuff. That our mothers are like widows, like the loss of the honor of the city, and then finally coming down to starving and, and, and the thirst, which is Perak Dalit. And then you roll back and you see the Pasuke continues the Perak Dalit. It's all mapped out here. Perak Vav, we reached out to Egypt, and, and uh, Perak Zion uh, goes back to, to the theme of Perak Aleph. And then the entire Perak picks up three Psukim, uh, five Psukim, and another three Psukim on the themes of each of the Prakim. You can see it mapped here and echoes them, but it echoes them in a very different way. It's one thing to talk in flowery language, in painful but flowery language, personalizing the city and giving the city the buildings a voice to talk about how they've been abandoned and how all the glory has gone, etc. It's another thing to actually give a geshri, to cry out and say, it's terrible, we're suffering, and just say the word straight. So I'm going to ask you again, what was Yirmiyahu's goal in, in everything he was doing? His goal was one thing. His goal was to get the people to cry. Get the people to cry out. Why couldn't they cry out? It's PTSD. It's simply the, the, the shock. Because what did the people believe about Yerushalayim up until the moment of the Chorban? Never going to happen. Hechal Adonai, Hechal Adonai, Hechal Adonai, It's not going to happen. And then suddenly there's a siege, and it's as if there's a paralysis that grabs the people. There's a trauma that paralyzes. And they're not able to give voice. So what does Yermiao do? He orchestrates the city singing, him talking to the city, the city has a voice, the city speaks about her children in very painful terms. He speaks about little babies looking to their mothers and crying out for sustenance, and in the end the mother's cooking their own children. Extremely painful and graphic images. But it's still just Yirmiyahu talking. That's why I said if, you, if Eicha ends at Perak Dalet, it's a failed mission. Because the people never cry out. And that's as far as it can go in that generation. And it's the necessary building blocks upon which Parakeh, which is the key thing, happens. Think about Keynote. The Keynote, what we call Keynote. You remember in Chazal, Keynote is the book. Our Keynote all start from Parakeh. 
What's the first thing we do Pishav of night after we finish reading Eicha? The first keynote we have is simply echoing Parakeh. Now we take themes from the other Parakeh, but we never do that with another Parakeh. We never take the, a, a Parakeh and just kind of retell it, except for Parakeh. Because Parakeh is the Parakeh that opens up the doors to, to, to lamentation, to us being able to dirge. Because it's the one that finally the people are crying. And the people can only cry with two things. They can only cry with enough information at their fingertips about what existed before, but more critically, with enough distance to be able to cry. And why is crying so critical? Why does that earn Zechariah spot here in, 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 uh, in Ezra? I think because the only way that you can ever get better is if you can cry about how bad it is. And that echoes something else that happens with Zechariah. I'll tell you, a couple of years ago, I asked um, some colleagues, just, you know, theoretically, why fast is Shabbat? Why fast anymore? You know? And luckily I was with colleagues who took the, ser- the question seriously enough that uh, they gave it sober thought. And one of them, a teacher of mine, said something brilliant. He said because, he said he, he, said he was once asked on TV this question, and uh, he gave the answer, he said, because if you look in Zechariah Zion, when the Mishlachat comes from Bavel, the delegation comes from Bavel to Yushalayim, and they ask Zechariah, after the Mikdash is rebuilt, should we continue mourning? Should we continue fasting? You know what his answer is? His answer is, you don't get it. <coughs> you think the fasting, is, the fasting is the main thing? That's not the main thing. The main thing is fixing the stuff that went wrong last time. And that's why the constant refrain in Perak Zayin and of Zechariah is V'haimet v'hashalom mehavu and shiftu mishpat emet you got to correct what was wrong. So he told me that uh, it was Rav Yobinun, he told me that uh, that a while later he bumped into a woman who said, Ata, Rav Minun? He said, yeah. He said, you know what? I'm a totally chilani woman. I don't observe anything. But Tisha B'Av fast since I saw you on TV. Because you're right, we have things wrong with our society. Until we fix them, there, there's something missing. And so, and so, in a sense, that's also the, the piece here. Is that Zechariah is saying, "Till you recognize what the problem is, and you can't do that till you cry. You can't fix it." So there's recognizing what the symptom, what the cause was, the the lack of social justice, the the whoring after foreign gods, everything that Yumeyahu describes. All the stuff that Chizkiyahu, that, that Masha, sorry, put into motion. And all of the lack of proper treatment of the disenfranchised, which is really seemed, what seemed to seal the fate. But only when there's an awareness on the part of the people and a crying out of that there was a terrible sin and all this terrible stuff happened and we're suffering from it and this is our suffering. Notice, there's very little tshuva going on here. They don't clap al chet. They say, Hashivinu lechav nashuva. Hashivinu seems to be, bring us back to our land, and we'll, we'll do the right thing. It doesn't, there's not a, a lot of al chet, but that's all right. This is the starting place. The starting place, you've got to be able to cry. And they couldn't cry till now. There was too much shock to cry. And this is Zechariah's contribution. So, I saw a little while ago, a fellow named Guillaume wrote an article. Take a look at the bottom, page 18. 
And he pointed something else out. This I would not put past the realm of cute. Right? It's a very interesting kind of piquant thing. I don't know how much importance I would describe to it. The Zechariah piece, I believe, is Zechariah Navi, I think, is a very significant find. But he pointed out that if you look at the acrostics and meta- metatoxics, which is the metatoxics, which is the beginning and the end of the of the lines, you find that the last four psukim spell out Elohach Ram Meod. Your God is very great. His claim is that, that that's what Zechariah was trying to impress upon the people. In other words, their awareness, because if you look at the, the, the last four psukim, that's exactly what happens. You are king forever. And that God being in his place and being powerful forever, of course, is a response to the pagans who, what is the pagans' take on the destruction of the Mikdash? That, now that's the second bite. First bite, our God is bigger than your God. Right. Right? And so, saying, our God is the God in heaven, the one who controls all of it. And as a result of that, of course, we're sure to return. One way or the other, whether or not this last acrostic belongs in there, even if you're not comfortable with this high piece, which, you know, you can go either way on that. The, this last parak, I believe, is, is quite clearly of a later generation. And of a generation that has now had enough space and enough opportunity to reflect on what's happened to be able to give vent to their, to their tears and to give expression to their crying. And it's no longer a ha'anashai, personalization of the city or of the buildings or of the mikdash that Yirmiyahu did, but it's actual people really crying out. And that's why this is the parak that we pick up on for our own, our own keynote, where we really cry out and cry out to God about see everything that's happened. You'll notice in keynote there's very little tshuva. It's essentially crying out. Because you can't get anywhere until you can realize this is how terrible things are and I feel terrible and I'm just in a terrible place. And until you can cry, which is what you may have tried already in Perak Bet, Kumironi Balaila, Shivchi Kamayim Libech, Nochach Pnei Adonai. But it doesn't work. And it's only with distance and with the information of the first four Pakim we're able to do that here. So, uh, even though we, we, have, we are now in uh, weeks of festivity and of Nechama, uh, from Choban uh, Yishalayim. Nonetheless, Eicha is a beautiful book that's in Tanakh, and uh, and the uh, emotional reservoir that's there is one that we can always draw on, uh, even even in times when perhaps we need to step back from it. But uh, hopefully for you know for the future, this will become a a uh, a great memorial of a time that we can uh, look back on, perhaps nostalgically, but uh, and wistfully, but. Uh, you know, as part of a different reality. In the meantime, it still is our reality.